Hello, I am Cody Allingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. Now today I have a very special episode for you. I talk with Glenn Herod, the founder of the Happy Cow Milk Company. What Glenn is doing is decentralized dairy farming, where individual farmers are able to process and pasteurize their milk themselves using Glenn's hardware specs and connect in with a platform for supply and distribution of dairy products directly to businesses and consumers. Now in New Zealand, the existing dairy industry is highly centralized and export focused, uh, often at the expense of the local market. And though Happy Cow Milk Company is not specifically a Bitcoin business, by the end of this conversation, I found many parallels with Bitcoin thinking and the broader theme of transformation and change in the world as Glenn seeks to decentralize, build alternative supply chains and reroute around legacy systems too really build something better now i do hope you enjoy this episode if you would like to support the show please consider streaming some satoshis via your favorite podcasting 2.0 platform such as fountain or breeze otherwise on to the show well look glenn I'm, I'm keen to just sort of dive in a little bit to your a little bit of your background um talk a little bit about happy cow milk company and kind of where that came from if that's okay yeah well i guess it all starts for me wanting to do, do it my own way and go my own way and actually step out of a, a system which is the dairy system of New Zealand and uh, you know I, I'd love dairy farming but I didn't actually want to go dairy farming as is the, the standard way in New Zealand and that's um, basically I would go and work for someone uh, and then I'd save enough money and I'd buy some cows and then I'd come share milking and I'd go and work on someone else's farm and would split the money 50-50. But basically, to get a good shear milking job, I would have to have high production, and I would have to farm basically the way the farmer wants to farm, which is the standard model. And uh, if I did that for 15 years, I might be able to squeeze into buying a little tiny dairy farm, uh, in which case I'd be surrounded in debt. And, um, well, if land prices keep going up, I'd eventually be okay. But that didn't appeal to me. I wanted to do things in a little bit more of a hurry. And also, I i guess I had been in business and, um, you know, retail and things like that. I just saw the the power of um, of good marketing and advertising. And um, and people really wanted a authentic, um, well, this was probably 2010. I really started thinking of this in earnest. And people were quite, um, well, they're turning off the dairy industry in a big way. I mean, mainly around the uh, environmental impacts and things like that because the dairy boom was in full swing. And, um, yeah, so that's really why I thought, well, you know what, I would like to milk a few cows and sell milk to um, local businesses. And, of course, I thought the easy way was to just find a farmer and I would buy milk from them. And, of course, that didn't really work because no farmer really wants to step out of their system. They want to do what they are doing, um, especially in Canterbury when the, the average herd size is about um, sort of 900 cows. So if someone comes and says, I want to buy 50 cows worth of milk, it's like more hassle than it's really worth. So I ended up, um, well, deciding, okay, well, it doesn't look like I can buy milk from anyone and I couldn't really promote it as being fantastic milk knowing it's coming from a you know a standard sort of dairy farm so I uh, I leased some land and I built a, a little mobile cow shed uh, which is uh, and and built an onboard milk 
processing unit on top of it. So it's, it's like a tiny home, but you put cows in it and a pasteurizer. And um, that essentially let me start. I started with seven cows and it sort of took off from there and people loved it. And, um, you know, we're selling milk to all the top cafes in Christchurch and I was working my balls off like you wouldn't believe. And anyway, um, I did that for three years and then um, uh, we got to 60-odd cows, I think. So we were growing it, you know, about 120% a year or something. And, um, yeah, I just couldn't make it efficient enough. So, and it's this age-old problem. It's distribution and efficient packaging efficiency or processing efficiency, which um, really put us up. And and really, I needed to spend more money to make it work, and I, I really ran out of money. So um, that's where we shut down. And um, quite quite uh well by surprise i guess um, my story kind of went viral around the world of this here's this little dairy farm that's doing all the good things that we want to see in the world and he he can't make it work so uh anyway i, I set up a patreon and that basically funded me for about two years or a year and a half and i was able to figure out what the problems were like deep fundamental like what what is the fundamental issue here why did i go broke and um, and really, uh, we then crowdfunded, um, I guess, what we call the happy cow model now, which is, uh, I guess, I've gone from being a dairy farmer to now creating a, a platform, I suppose you'd call it, of um, specially designed on-farm milk processing hardware, uh, which is attached to the cloud, which will do all the, the regulatory compliance. And then we have different ways of dispensing milk, and um, and I guess that's what we call the happy cow model. So uh, very quickly, um, that was so. What's that? That was was that seven years ago? <laughs> we started seven years ago. So if I was on a standard dairy farm, I would halfway to owning my own farm by now. Yeah. Well, you've done uh, uh, something quite innovative though, and I, I wanted to just circle back though to your sort of origin story with this though. What did you say? So you grew up in Canterbury, or? Uh, well, I was born in Africa. Um, my parents, I we moved to the North Island, and then we moved down to uh, uh, Southland. So I'd call myself a Southlander, really, probably. Oh wow! Well, well that's that's that sounds like a, a quite a, quite an interesting journey. And I mean, would you say though, throughout that, you you felt the sort of connection to the to, to the land and sort of you know the rural side of things, or? Yeah, I, I mean, I really like farming, and farmers love farming, um, and. Yeah, it's really it was really good. But what what we find is New Zealand farmers are really commodity farmers in that. Well, all farmers are, but New Zealand's different in that we um, export so much of our agricultural produce that um, all farmers kind of send all their produce to the same company, which then packages it and processes it and markets it. So farmers are all on the same team. Yeah, you know? um, and they're removed from that that end customer and what we've kind of seen particularly with Fonterra and less and less milk companies is that gap, I guess, has got wider. And we've basically got um, farmers and non-farmers. They, I mean, they're both good people, but they just look at the world so differently. And, yeah, um, yeah so uh, I guess that's what we're trying to, trying to be that bridge. Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that. You know, myself, I, um, 
I grew up sort of adjacent to, um, I grew up in Hawke's Bay and sort of adjacent mm-hmm. to the orchard industry and, and looking at, um, you know, things like apples and and how that system originally was like a single desk, you know, for, for mm. apple, the apple industry. And then there was sort of a move towards un, unbundling that. Um, uh, and and obviously with, with, with things like horticulture, it's all export orientated. You know, we get yeah. the, the second best stuff here locally. And <laughs> that, that is actually, uh, I think, a real challenge. Uh, and for the dairy industry as well, you know, you're paying quite a lot of money for uh, for butter and, and milk and cream in the supermarket. And, and it's often seen as perhaps unfair that, you know, the best product gets sent overseas. Um, but I can appreciate that that's sort of the backbone of New Zealand. I mean, that's that's what we've always been, um, is that kind of export orientated. Um, but I'd love to hear sort of from your perspective, I guess a little bit of an understanding of the structure of the, the dairy industry. I, I was doing a little bit of research um, and, and looking at how just over time it's become so centralized. And I saw, I saw in the 1920s, um, there were over 600 dairy processing factories in New Zealand, um, and I and and these have sort of been merging over time. And I know certainly um, just out where my family is, uh, uh, they have a place out in Dannyverk, and you know oh. you go down there and there's the old uh, Ruahini Cooperative Dairy Company factory, and it's like, just like an abandoned um, facility. Yeah. And there used to be hundreds of these all over New Zealand. So I mean, h- how did that happen? I mean, what's the structure of the dairy industry now? What how does it work as a as an as a business as an industry in New Zealand? Yeah, that's interesting. I was about to say that you drive through Southland, there's old dairy companies everywhere, and they're tiny little things. And yeah, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't know exactly that far back, but because um, I only came to New Zealand in mid '80s and I was only a kid. But um, I know in the early 2000s, that's really when Fonterra was formed, and it was really around various dairy companies. All well, there were lots of separate co-ops. They were still cooperatives, but there were lots of them. And what the the feeling was with these small cooperatives, all these cooperatives will go overseas and they will compete against each other. And the idea was, well, we shouldn't be doing that. We should join this mega co-op. Um, and, and I think what really happened was these smaller co-ops would essentially go out of business over, you know, a couple of decades as, you know, from, I don't know, let's take the war times, the 40s all the way through up until you know, mid eighties and, and a lot of them would um, find little markets. Some of them would be local fresh milk. Some of them would be butter or ice cream or whatever. And and a lot of the brands we see now like tip top or whatever were started by some of these smaller co-ops and um, Fonterra essentially, well, they fell under the Fonterra banner. Um, yeah. But so it's still, there were lots of co-ops They had individual um, identities and now we really, we have, Essentially, we have Fonterra, which is about 80% of New Zealand farmers, somewhere around there. And then we have, um, uh, I would say, almost every other milk company is actually a Chinese milk company. Um, well, there's there's Westland and Tatua, the two that come to mind in New Zealand. Are they, would they be well, quite... Tatua, uh, I think Tatua might actually be New Zealand owned. Westland is... Um, is uh, Chinese owned. Oh, Sinle really? is, yeah. Westland sold out um, a couple of years ago. Um, uh, Sinle is majority owned, I believe. Or oh, well, don't check. There's a big Chinese ownership there, and then you've got um, Yili. Um, oh, 
Yeah, there's quite a few. And basically what they do is they make powder and send it overseas. Yeah. I mean, mm. that's that's interesting. I also would be keen to just understand as well this co-op model. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, growing up sort of surrounded by orchards and Hawke's Bay, yeah. you had, you know, Enza, which was the single desk mm. for, for Apple exports, but that sort of then split out. Um, and so where you see a lot of these horticultural industries today is it's um, – uh, you know, a levy-funded organisation, but there's you know independent exporters, and and there's quite a lot of variety in that space. Um, the big, uh, the only one that stands out would be uh, Zespri and Kiwifruit as as separate to that model. But with dairy, this cooperative model where it's actually owned by the farmers um, and uh, working together on that. I mean, that feels like it's quite a unique, especially for such a large company. That's quite a unique approach. I mean, why is it that that's what the dairy industry fell into for for a model? Um. It's interesting. So I think there's only Frontier is the only co-op now. I think all the rest are private companies. Oh yeah. Who uh, the farmers don't own shares in them. Actually, Tatua is probably a co-op. Uh, actually, um, the, so for instance, if you go to Sinlay and you say, "I want, will you take my milk?" They will say, "This is the milk price," and they'll pay you that price. If you go to Fonterra, they will say, okay, you've got to buy shares in Fonterra before we can take your milk. And the, the idea is that um, the, the shares that you buy, it's about a year's worth of production, is the, the, the money that the cooperative needs to build the stainless steel and whatever to process your milk. So that's the original idea of the co-op. So the, the big handbrake for Fonterra or the issue is their capital structure in that if a farmer leaves Fonterra, they don't just lose a farmer who's supplying them. They've also got to empty their bank account and pay them at all their shares. So um, um, there's a big risk to Fonterra. So then what that does as an organization is now you've got to um, you've got to try and keep your, um, your milk price high to keep your farmers. But then, you know, market conditions or whatever don't necessarily dictate that. Um, it's... So I think, you know, there's some good examples of co-ops around the world. I think Rabobank's a co-op, but um, it's, mm, yeah, I, I think it's it's very, um, I think it's hard to be a commercially, um, I think you can be a, um, a commodity business as a co-op because, you know, you put milk into a brown paper bag or milk powder and send it off and someone else turns it into the end product. I think to be a, a consumer product as a co-op is, is more difficult. Yeah, well, that's sort of where it mm. seems, uh, you know, and I, I'm looking at it from the outside, it seems like Fonterra has their fingers in a lot of different things. You've got all of the consumer products, um, you know, the brands that are under that. And I imagine there's quite a lot of overhead in terms of maintaining all of that. And so you're also perhaps creating a market, um, market access role where you're sort of trying to bridge overseas markets i mean is that is that fall under the remit of what Fonterra is doing in terms of those international agreements and trying um, to broach, broach markets or i guess i'm not an expert on Fonterra, but i know it's a hugely complicated business and they basically inherited all these consumer brands in new zealand mm. and to be honest i uh, i think Fonterra, if they could get rid of them they probably would they wouldn't i mean they sold tip top recently so i don't think to be honest Fonterra's main business is exporting milk overseas so that's really where the what they care about, what they really um, focus on. Um, I know for New Zealanders, we think about them, you know, and anchor and all those sorts of things. But I think as a as a, 
a line on their um their profit and loss it's minute compared to everything else well that that's interesting because that's sort of where you, you come in here because you're talking local you're talking um decentralized um and it's almost there's yeah there's an opportunity here with what you're doing to sort of bring it back to actually you know local product mm. and local communities and i think that's that's something i'm really interested in because um you are right there is a bit of a narrative around dairying um, and there's been campaigns against it and I think mm. looking at it sort of you know from the outside again you know you look at your Crafer farms you look at your Fonterras and oh, these yes. sort of you know these sort of mega corps and mega farms and obviously because there's that push to export and, and that um, bottom line um, it creates necessarily this kind of you know environmental externalities whereas I mean, the reality is, I and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but I feel like dairy is uh, certainly can be a very holistic process, and it can um, integrate really well with um, with land. It can make make use of land, and certainly farmers can um, be very good stewards, and they are very good stewards of the land. So, I mean, in terms of your approach to that side of things, I mean, how how is what what is Happy Cow Milk Company's approach? Yeah, well, there's a there's a lot there. Like we talked about the decentralizing dairy um talk about that then i I guess there's the actual practical farming stuff so um i think when you go back to what what dairy farming is is um you know it's how do we how do we explain that i think a piece of land will hold a certain amount of uh amount of animals or will grow a certain amount of crops and what we tend to do with, um, for instance, you can put maybe two cows per hectare on some land. And if you just, and and you wouldn't have to import any feed, any palm kernel or external um, grain or anything like that. That that land will support, you know, two cows per hectare. That's two cows per rugby field for, you know, all year. And that's basically a sustainable model in that um, you, um you're just replacing a few nutrients, a small amount of nutrients that get taken out by the milk every year. But what we tend to do is we put three cows per hectare and then we buy in silage from the neighbor or we buy in meal or we buy in palm kernel. So what you're doing is you're buying in nutrients. You've got an extra cow per hectare and she's putting those additional units onto the land, which it's it's not able to carry basically because of its soil type or its... Um, topography or the weather climate uh, conditions and things like that and if we take a look at canterbury what we've really done there is we've taken really really dry ground and um, we've um, created irrigation which means that now it used to hold a couple of sheep now you can put three cows per hectare on it with um, probably three four five six times the uh, nutrient loading um, that comes to it so that's i mean that's the basics of um of uh, I suppose agriculture and um, what we're trying to do is just a very simple which is what dairy farming used to be back in the, the 70s 80s and sort of early 90s is you you basically had your farm and you your farm could carry whatever cows it could carry um, and you know intensity in the in the last sort of decades has really caused us to to push land a lot um, you know, push the production per hectare much higher and like you say, you get all those externalities with it that comes with it. Yeah. Well, no. Certainly, the um, uh, there's there's and there's a lot of I think scrutiny on this. Um, and if you look at things like um, 
uh, you know, the use of fertilizers in um, pasture production and, and all of that, that you know, there, there's a lot, uh, definitely a lens being put on that. But as you say, um, if you were to pull it back towards the uh, carrying capacity of that land, which I know certainly my where my dad lives in Central Hawke's Bay, the, the neighbour has a you know has a cow, a milking cow, and mm-hmm. um, you know we went round there for dinner the other day, and um, you know had some butter that they had made, and it was a very <laughs> kind of a homesteading kind of a lifestyle, but um, I mean it's it's incredible and it's fresh and it's good to go, and um, you know that sort of small community. Um, mm-hmm stuff like that i mean where would you get that i mean that's a boutique product but it's actually really quite quite a basic mm. thing you know and i'm, I'm mm. interested in how that has changed as well because i mean even looking at um, packaging um, i know certainly talking to the old man about how he had glass bottles back in the day and <laughs> just the amount of plastic that's been used in these um, milk bottles and milk packaging and uh, tetra packaging mm. and, and all of that which they they use for, for export and, and, and also locally. I mean, what what is your approach to, say, the, the, the packaging and, and that sort of that, well, that side of things? Yeah, packaging, that's basically been our whole whole thing is how to how to solve this packaging problem. And um, it's it's really interesting in that you, people, you, you sort of look at it from the surface and you think, okay, we've got milk. Well, let's just not put it in a plastic bottle. Let's put it into a glass bottle. I mean, how hard can that be? Well, it's really, really hard because you can't get any existing milk factory that um, packages into a plastic bottle to put milk into a, a glass bottle. They just simply won't do it and can't do it. And they'll basically say to you that it's because there's a, a, the risk of glass in the product and things like that. But, I mean, you can buy baby formula and or baby food in glass bottles, you know. So um, it's... So if what we've really had to do, if you want to get reusable packaging, you actually have to solve the processing side of it um, to actually um, build a system that will package into a reusable packaging. So originally I did um, reusable glass bottles. So we would um, deliver in glass bottles, would pick up the empties, bring them back to the, the factory and wash them and fill them. And that was a huge amount of work. Um and you can do that if you've either got people or you've got um, automated equipment. And I determined that I think we're going to go with a model where we, we're just going to let the customer um, package the uh, uh, bottle of milk. So we um, built a system where we uh, pasteurize into a bulk container and then we take that, that bulk container to milk dispensers or to cafes or anywhere that's got our dispenser. Um, but even that's easier said than done because um, everybody on the consumer side of the milk, so from retailers to cafes to to workplaces or everything, they're all set up to receive crates of plastic milk. And the crate with two litre plastic milk is really, really space efficient. It's rectangle. You could get 19 litres or something in one crate and they all stack up. And that's actually really, really efficient. And cafes don't have to worry about anything. Staff don't have to worry about anything. It's just done for them. And as soon as you go in with, oh, oh, well, we're going to put a dispenser here, which is now you've got to find a new place to put the dispenser. Uh, it's got to replace the old fridge, but then they want to put you know, all the other stuff that they used to put on that fridge as well as milk has to go somewhere else. And there's a lot of barriers there. And I, I went to, I was just talking to an organic uh, retailer the other day and they said, oh, we used to have a, uh, a dispenser here. And like, this is one of the 
holier than thou, you know, organic places that you would go to, you know, um, get the best, most uh, environmentally friendly products. And they said, oh, we just can't be bothered with a dispenser because we had to clean at the end of the day. Um, and that's sort of like, for, so for me, building the system, I have to design for that, um, at least to start off with. And it really takes um, people being committed to actually change. And change is really, really difficult. No one wants to do it. So um, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's what we do. But yeah. We'll see no, that, if it works. That, that's interesting. I think yeah, you mentioned change there. And often it's the incentives that can be um, very difficult as well. And if, you know, you've, if you've got the right incentives, you can often, you know, things just fall into place. But when you're fighting against incentives, uh, perhaps ones that have been placed um, improperly on the market, then it can be very difficult. Um, and so, you know, mm. something like plastic, which I'm not sure what what it's like, but um, I have certainly seen those crates out, you know, the back of cafes and stuff. And mm. I mean, there's certainly got to be a cost associated with, um, you know, oh, that, yeah. that amount of plastic and, and that, whole, yeah. that whole supply chain. But it's what is there and it's what's been um, incentivized and in it, in it, in it, so it's, it's in place. Um, but yeah. I, I think just sort of zooming back though to this um, decentralization approach, I mean, mm. this it really is quite an innovative um, idea. And it seems if most growers, oh, sorry, most farmers in New Zealand are, you know, looking at this this export um, opportunity, this, this kind of market driven approach where it is all about that export dollar, I mean, mm. how. Is, is that reflective of, of, of a change in New Zealand's culture in terms of opening up sort of that neoliberal thing that happened in the 90s? Is it um, a change in global situation? Does it actually work out in terms of that money getting back into New Zealand? Like, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, I guess, from a macro point of view, um, the economic flows of that. I mean, does it make sense for New Zealand to be doing what it's doing with that um, that scale of farming? Uh, well, I guess it's just, uh, I guess each individual farmer makes a, makes a decision and all these individual decisions turn into be a collective um, and I guess if you sat in front of each farmer and sat on their kitchen table and he explained or she explained why she's doing what she's doing it would make perfect sense um, although you get all the rat bags you 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 mentioned the Crafer farms and you know a lot of farmers are actually property investors and, and they're not there for the animals or anything like that so that's probably one of the issues but I, I think um, I, look, honestly I don't focus too much on that because I can't control that and I what I know is like 90% of dairy farmers think I'm a complete idiot <laughs> so um, we're, uh, we're not here to change I guess the, the dairy industry in New Zealand I mean we would like to be an influence and I think Many of them know about me and what we do, but um, hopefully we can show that, uh, I guess, giving customers what they're after and being uh, empathetic to the, the, the public will actually help them in the end. But um, as far as that, um, you know, we're talking about the decentralization back of dairy. So again, have these lots of uh, smaller farms spread around the country, local supplying locals, uh, kind of like we used to have in the old days. And it's you see this um, this trend where everything is centralizing. Even now, when we're in you know the age of well, we're talking about decentralization. If you look at um, you know we don't go to the butcher anymore either. We all go to Countdown or or um, Pack and Save, and um, 
you know, we look at the pandemic and so many smaller mum and dad businesses shut down, yet Amazon and um, all these big centralised uh, corporates actually had record profits. Uh, and it's really, uh, if we look at dairy farmers around the world, uh, family farms in particular, they, they're, they're all shutting down at, at huge, huge numbers. Like you, in Europe, there's about 20-odd thousand that shut down every year. And um, they have done for the last 20 years. And, and people think, well, that's because no one drinks dairy anymore. Well, dairy is actually increasing. Uh, liquid milk consumption is increasing around the world um, by about 2% per annum year on year. And that, um, that supply is taken up by not the smaller family farms, it's taken up by probably one farm with 5,000 cows or something like that in, in, in Russia or, or somewhere. Yeah. And um, I guess what we sort of see our mission is, is the reason centralization in this regard is working and milk processing is working is because you get such efficiency gain. You know, um, it's it's much better to spend $20 million on the most advanced milk processing bottling line that will, you know, you, you can't compete. Uh, a local couldn't try and bottle a litre of milk and process it for the for the, the price they can do it. But what we're trying to, what we essentially have to do is um, build a system which enables local farmers to have efficiency on farm, and it's efficiency in milk processing, it's efficiency in distribution, and, and um, I, I guess that's what Happy Cow does. And then we, hopefully, our model, once we've got it all sorted out, we can um, make that available to uh, farmers all around the world. Basically, I mean, we're talking about New Zealand farmers here. I, I'm not really thinking about New Zealand farmers. I'm more thinking about European farmers, US farmers, and they've they've got about a hundred cows, and you know they're pretty, you know they they run pretty good systems, and what they need is um, some efficiency added. And well, they're all selling uh, commodity milk to Danone or someone like that, but they put our equipment on their farm, and now they can all the, now they're the milk processor, and they can now get double the money for their milk, but then they've got to be able to distribute it, and then that's that's only a quarter of the problem because they still got to be able to approach people and, and make sales and, and actually build a brand as well. So I guess we try and help with all of that uh, long term. It sounds, it sounds like quite, quite, quite a lot there. You, you said something um, though, just a, a little bit earlier on there that a lot of farmers are property investors and I, I can appreciate that <laughs> as, a, as a thing. Um, and a lot of them also think that maybe this is a, a bit of a wild goose chase in terms of an idea. But it's interesting, you know, because earlier you shared your story of perseverance and going through this this journey. But it's, it seems to me as well, just, you know, being tangentially um, uh, connected to, you know, uh, to, to, the, to the farming, you know, world, mm. that certainly it is this this property investment um this kind of chase of chasing profits and and that kind of um trying to realize that gain and at the it's almost at the expense of actual value and i think this is something that really comes through when you look at um you know intensification of land that really isn't suited for that use case um and i mean there's there is innovation taking place in in horticulture and and and, um uh, beef and lamb and dairy all of these places but it's uh, it's challenging because if, if you're just after that short short term gain, you know you're not going to be thinking about the longer term. Um, and it really seems like what you're talking about here is, you know, though it's for dairy, I mean, this model could equally apply to a lot of different things in the agricultural space. 
Um, and in that sense, it's mm-hmm. it's it's not even a a single piece of technology or, or, or anything. It's sort of a, a mesh of technologies and almost a, a thought system or like a way of uh, approaching the world, which, as you mentioned, the pandemic and, and that whole thing, we've been mm. seeing just from an economic point of view, this kind of move away from globalization, right? And so with the supply chain shocks that happened, you know, you had ships not able to get through to ports um, and, and that kind of, I think woke up a lot of people and certainly with, mm. with this show talking about, you know, uh, economics, macro situations, value, uh, Bitcoin, all of these these topics. Mm. I certainly feel in the last few years that there's been a huge sort of readjustment to people look at the way they look at these things. And I mm-hmm. mean, sending sending a shipment of milk powder or whatever halfway across the world. I mean, how much fuel is involved in that? What? How much does the price of, price of oil affect that? You know, there's all of these externalities which are very difficult to price in whereas having a model that is hyper local you know you can get milk um get fresh fruit and vegetables get meat all of these things from your local community um and actually and i'd love to hear what the numbers look like on this but if you're actually able to cut out all of that um you know the, the export stuff which would also cost quite a lot i imagine that'd actually be quite profitable for the farmers as well um yeah, so let's let's. There's a couple of things there. First off, we um, Lincoln did some research, um, and if you bank a, uh, a block of butter in New Zealand, uh, put it on a ship, ship it to the UK, and sell it in a UK supermarket, it has half the carbon footprint as a UK block of butter. Um, so that's just simply, and that's because of the farming systems. Like New Zealand, you put a cow in the paddock and you don't basically do anything to it. She walks to the cow shed. And in in the UK, you have to start a tractor to do basically everything. You've got to feed it. She's inside. You've got to start a tractor to feed it and start a tractor to spread her manure and all this sort of stuff. So I, I get that. And we, automatic, we automatically think, you know, we're shipping stuff all around the world and how inefficient is it? Um, and, and I agree. Our thing is locals supplying locals. Um, and I I guess I guess it's so complicated to try and figure out um, whether that is beneficial. I guess I, I guess that's not in my consideration. I know it's there and it's probably a factor for many things, but um, we sh- you know we can um, we buy fertilizer from Morocco. It goes onto a ship, comes to Tauranga goes into a truck, goes to a depot, then the truck comes and drops it off at your farm and it's, I don't know, $500 a tonne or something. And you think, how can that be so cheap? <laughs> I mean, it's not anymore. The fact is it's doubled or tripled or whatever. But um, this whole thing, yeah, like the pandemic, the whole supply chains are just ruined and we couldn't get PCBs made um, because we couldn't get the little components. And it really... Um, has made us think about how to simplify everything and just not be so reliant on going overseas. And I think we've made, uh, well, I've made the call that if a farmer signs on to use our equipment, our equipment has to be able to ship over and we can't travel with it because we have to assume that we won't be able to travel. Um, Because I think we're probably coming into a world where travel restrictions are a thing Um, and it's going to be costly. And yeah, but, so our goal is really around how do you keep mum and dad farming businesses uh, viable, basically. Do you think um, keep them viable? But yeah, sorry, I'm rambling on. But no, um, no. you keep keep them viable. But it's it's the 
It's good farmers who are farming the way that we actually want, that people are want and happy. And what's happening at the moment is those people are getting screwed and the, the people we don't want farming are winning. Yeah, well, I mean, this is starting to connect the dots for me a little bit here. So in terms of understanding, you know, there is a hardware component to what you do. Um, what what would you say though, just before I get into my question, what would you say though is the the real out of out of the sort of the, the, the spectrum of the business, where is the real unique um, um, I guess point where happy cow milk comes in, and what are the other pieces which are adjacent and supportive of that? Um, it's really hard. I was trying to do a pitch deck, and it's really hard to actually articulate that. Where um, it's a it's a bit of everything. It's like the problem is, is if you're if farmers all around the world, they do the numbers and they think, oh, if I could process my own milk, I would make all this extra money. And they go and buy micro, small pasteurizers and bottling lines and everything, and they pay a fortune for it. But then they've still got to build the factory. They've still got to get compliance. They've still got to set it all up. And then they run it, and they find that it's inefficient. Like, oh, it's taking three people this long to do this milk, and you know, there's not enough, it's too expensive and then they've got to distribute it and all these sort of things. And then how do you sell your milk? And they say, oh, it's frustrate from the farm and all the traditional stuff, which everyone else is doing and doesn't have any cut through. So I guess what our real point of difference is, is that we have this entire system right from the, the farm, right from where you plug your cow shed into it, right through to the dispenser and all the messaging. And it's all connected to the cloud so it means it's doing all the regulatory compliance for you it's doing the distribution management it's it's talking to crowdsource delivery people to help you deliver your milk and then we're there to tell you how to uh, appeal to the customers um that's that's essentially what we do so we're, i guess we we're more like a franchise i would say yeah no i'm just uh, it's, it's really interesting to hear this perspective on it because i, I feel like there's analogies here which i don't know if you're familiar with like open source software as, mm. a, as a concept yeah, yeah. like I, I can see analogies here where if if what if that it's kind of thinking of it like a platform if mm. things can also be built upon it and i mean this again it's just a conversation but like if things yeah. can be built upon it um then you you also enable ecosystems to emerge you know so uh, you you, you said, uh-huh. said there's, there's a, so there's a crowdsourcing aspect to getting the milk runs going and being able to pick up the mm. product I mean that that's really cool, and and if you don't have to build that, if other people can plug into that and build their own things on top of that, I think that's where a lot of innovation can happen. And um, you know, just from my world with um, open source software, things like Bitcoin, where it's open platform, anyone can build upon those systems um, mm. and work with them. There's no barriers to entry. There's no gatekeepers. And though there might be regulatory requirements for for certain aspects of you know money money transfer, those are those are sort of the on the on and off ramps but the actual meat in the middle is is fully open source and so mm. think of it like that i mean um what 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 is, so what does the crowd the crowdsource delivery look like at the moment i mean how do how does that how does how do people connect up connect up to that well we're actually building that at the moment so um essentially what we're looking for is farmers need to be able to sell their product and get it to the end the end customer and there's so many barriers to doing that. Like you deal with retailers and there's all sorts of barriers that you can't even imagine. And then they want to put a massive ret- uh, margin on it. So then the milk becomes super unaffordable. So um, I, I I think we're going to launch with this in the next couple of weeks. I think we're going to pick a suburb 
or suburbs, and we would like a you know a happy cow delivery person for each suburb. And um, the way that works is um, we've got our happy cow app. People say, "I want milk." They push the button, and um, it's it's pretty simple. It just sends a run sheet to the local um, the local delivery person who's designated for that region. And then they get up in the morning at five in the morning. They'll go and fill everyone's bottles up, and uh, and uh, then come back and basically just do that daily. So it could be two to three hours work a day, and um, and I, and I guess the, the the value of the the platform is that you um, if you can coordinate all those people, you've got coordination of, of orders, coordination of farmers, coordination of delivery people who are sick or want a day off or can't do it or or you've got fewer orders on one one suburb and more orders on another suburb so that's the that's the value of the, the platform long term and then um so that's sort of how we're thinking about it but i know that that platform model where you you provide the platform and allow people to to work on it but then you get all the questions about you know who's responsible for poor service or regulatory compliance and all those sorts of things and it's i guess at the end of the day it it is decentralized in some ways, but you still there's a centralized controlling force, isn't it? Which is, I guess, me. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess what what I'm positing here is, you know, the title of this show, you know, is the transformation of value. And what I mm-hmm. I love doing is is having these conversations and just exploring conceptually what 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 things could be, what they might look like. And mm-hmm. I know certainly um, that there is a reality to the existing system. Um, there are regulatory requirements, but what are some approaches that can be used to kind of think about it? It's sort of like a lens for thinking about things, which can be quite um, illuminating, mm. even if those aren't the way that you, you take it. So, for example, you know, this open source approach, you know, what does an open source platform look like, which traditionally we think software and computers, but, well, you know, for something quite, um, you know, quite real like farming, which in a way, though, is actually, you know, it, it can be digitized. You know, you've got... You can track the cows, you know, you know where they are, they've got tags. It, it can be, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can build a digital twin of, of a farm and, and <laughs> sort of see that and, and know that that's kind of what you've got. This is how many cows we've got. These are, you know, this is the rates we're mm-hmm. getting off them. And I, I think, I don't know, it's just interesting to think about, say, you know, what does the future look like? And especially if we are moving towards a world that's more increasingly multipolar, where there's, you know, Maybe shipping global shipping lines aren't just are not the way they were. Maybe there's just a you know incre- massive increase yeah. in, in oil price, so that shipping overseas is just really problematic. Mm. What does New Zealand look like in that situation? Because yeah. historic, I mean, we've been fully dependent on on exporting agricultural goods for a long time. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like, what happens if China? I don't know. There's a lot of talk geopolitically about China and Russia, and there seems to be you know, in Taiwan and all those sorts of things. And I mean, you could probably bet 50-50 that it's going to get worse. And then if we can't get our PCBs from China or whatever we get there, um, wherever we get them from, it has a it has a massive effect on everything. Um, I think we underestimate how important the global supply chain is. And I guess that's exports as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I'm just wondering as well, like with, um, I mean, there's uh, been a number of initiatives um, in the United States with, um, you know, looking at, I mean, they've got massive farming over there, you know, just insane scale oh, of, yeah. of farms. And 
this move towards you know more local production um and particularly for things like beef and and for meat but um you know shaking a rancher's hand you know your farmer's hand kind of meeting meeting the people behind it all and um i I feel like that i mean there's something quite positive about that and and it's hard to articulate and and i'm I'm feeling this just talking to you that it's it's hard to sort of articulate it because (laughs) you know the i mean certainly you know, we're getting the second best of everything at the moment in New Zealand. You know, apples, kiwi fruit, everything is the the you know what's left over is what we we see in the supermarket. But I mean, mm. with with something like milk, I'm wondering if if, if this is indicative of of a broader trend. And you said 90% of people, 90% of farmers think it's insane. But for me, that's encouraging. That you know, this <laughs> is it's it's pushing far enough outside of the you know the discourse that people can actually think wow yeah. you know this, this is a bit much but it, i don't know it, it feels like it's leading the way and i mean have you seen anything similar in this model um perhaps in other industries that's emerging globally is there anyone else looking at whether it's food or or, or other products that are looking at this kind of this this thinking that you're encapsulating um let me i guess my you just mentioned it. Originally, I wanted to set Happy Cow up as a, you know, a platform like, um, you know, the platform business model. Um, I don't know what's a classic example. More like the an Uber. You've got a supply side. You've got a uh, a customer side. Um, and I think more and more as I've gone in, maybe it's because we're early days. I've just found that we've had to just take control of almost every aspect ourselves. Um, so this crowdsource delivery is our i guess us trying to branch out again into that at least dip our toe in that model of that crowdsourced open source style thing which i think it can work and i don't know of anyone in agriculture who is doing something like this um i guess agriculture seems very um oh i'm going to annoy oh farmers won't listen to this but i guess um I shouldn't I shouldn't make assumptions, but um, I, I find when um, it's just very um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just very blur, very they try and do something innovative. It's not really innovative at all. It's just um, you know it's very safe. Um, now I haven't succeeded in doing anything yet, so uh, I don't probably not in a position to say something like that. Maybe I should do something safe and actually get profitable first. But um, I think. There's just a uh, what I found. Uh, there's just a, a massive um, groundswell of people who want authenticity from people who are doing good stuff, and they they people are just sending me emails every day saying, "How can we buy your milk?" And it's just so difficult to actually bypass all of these sorts of um, institutions. Like, say, we've got foodstuffs and we've got progressives. So you know. Their two thing, for example, that's probably where ninety percent of the grocery or milk is sold in New Zealand. And yeah, um, I guess I'm not answering your question here, but it's um, you have to do something completely different to get around all these existing um, ways of doing things, which are there for very good reasons and are uh, and are, I guess baked into the system. Yeah, well, I mean, that's something that we often talk about in the Bitcoin world, which is the legacy institutions, which comes back to things like you know mm-hmm. all of the all of the banks, all of the central banks printing money for fun. See, and and I mean, this is where it all connects back to to this world as well. Is you know, you go to the grocery store and you see the price of commodities and price of food go up, and certain and specifically food. 
Um, I've sort of mm-hmm. certainly noticed it myself with, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and people think, well, why did, where did this come from? And the answer quite clearly is that it's because of the money printing that's happened over the last few years. There's no, you know, there's no other explanation. Inflation that is driven by a particular event is usually transitory. So if you have an oil yep. shock, the price goes up and then it stabilizes, it actually goes down again. But in this case, the prices just keep going up and up and up. And people are starting to ask these questions. And so what you said about that authenticity, I really resonate with that because mm-hmm. that's exactly what, you know, a lot of my work's been about is, is that kind of asking those questions, connecting with people who are in that space. And I think people are, sort of had the, the carpet pulled out from beneath them in a way. Um, and so they sort of started to think, well, man, if, if that can happen, what else can happen? And that's where uh, something like what you've done, which it sounds like it was quite a lot of global interest in, in your project, right? Or was it mainly New Zealand with the crowdfunding? Um, yeah, I mean, we have more... Um, yeah, we have more international farmers who are interested than New Zealand farmers. Wow, yeah. Um, and I mean, the farmers as well, you said, I mean, people play it safe, but it's sort of the recipe that has worked for a long time, but that, I mean, the world's changing around us. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that um, environmentally, uh, geopolitically, every, everything's changing. And so that's why I think there's certainly a lot of truth though in what you're doing and what you're experimenting with, and you're not scared to give things a go. And that's, uh, I think that's really important. But then also being able to see that through to to something that can actually connect with people and that that's really the challenge and i appreciate that as a business owner myself what how difficult that can be because mm. you know anyone can go and work for someone um but if you actually build some new value i mean that's that's a challenge and you're, you're sort of standing out on your own sometimes doing that well um, we're completely outside of the system so we've got no bank debt or anything because no bank will fund us <laughs> um, and the reason farmers are conservative is because that's what the, uh, i guess the bankers want and, yeah. um, you know, um, but yeah, well, I mean, we, we look at, sorry. Oh, no, so I was, I was just going to say um, something, you mentioned the bankers and this is really interesting. So um, I was, I was having a, 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 watching an old documentary around the, a lot of the reforms that happened in New Zealand, um, probably around the time you came here, but back in the eighties you had um, mm-hmm. the fourth labor government, mm-hmm. which brought in the so-called Rogenomics. Um, yeah. And that, and there was some little, I mean, it's quite an old documentary, but they were talking about how, you know, you had the banker go out and basically repossess people's farms because they were so hocked up um, with debt and that debt-based uh, development, which was emerging at that time. And for a lot of farmers, they they literally lost the farm. You know, the family f- family yeah. heirloom um, because of that debt-based kind of system, which was driven by this lending well, and yeah, yeah. Well, they they had a double shot there. They had the you had the oil shock, and then you had interest rates at around fifteen percent or something like that. And then Rogenomics, Roger Douglas came in and he removed the subsidies off um, farming, uh, particularly the sheep and beef farm or sheep farmers. Um, and this is actually, so they, yeah, overnight basically they would receive 50% or maybe 20% of their income was a government subsidy. And they had to become efficient. And if you've looked at the, um, the productivity from sheep farmers over that time, I think it's phenomenal how efficient they've become. It's still they still make no money, but <laughs> um, and I think this is what's happening in Europe now. One, they're taking um, subsidies off farmers, uh, particularly in the UK is the latest one. But then they've been hit by a, a double whammy in that now there's uh, new emissions, I guess trading schemes or or taxes or restrictions. The Dutch farmers are are seeing it now with nitrogen uh, limitations. And they, now, rightly or 
wrongly, they're getting hit from every direction when they're already under pressure as well. So, what I mean, what you're going to happy cows not going to solve this problem, but we might save a few farmers. But um, what we're going to see is, um, I think milk's going to get more expensive, and um, you know everything, eggs and and so on. And I, I think. I think we're in for a tough couple of years, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I certainly, um, you know, am, am aware of a lot of the changes happening there um, with, uh, you know, nitrogen with with the fertilizer mm. use. Um, you know, Hewaka Ekenoa, and the, you know, their whole pricing that in um, to, mm-hmm. to the price of things. And in a way, it's it's sort of it's starting to appear. You know, we've had murmurings. Well, I mean, prices are already going up for for consumers, but we've had murmurings with the with the, the sudden egg shortage recently and yeah. you know there's there's a whole lot of the feel like they're kind of conspiring in a way but it really is just different things happening at different times that are coming together and it's really going to cause a lot of pain um but coming back to mm-hmm. something you, you said earlier you mentioned you know you, you uh, when you were first starting out you were looking at how you could open this up as a platform more or less like the uber model um, but you you ended up needing to be back at the center of that anyway. What, what what sort of challenges were you finding that meant that you couldn't just sort of open the whole thing up? What, uh, what, what barriers did you run into? No, I guess the I guess the technology is brand new. We're still prototype stuff, so we're just getting a lot of breakdowns and you know little circuits on the PCB board are designed to handle a certain motor draw aren't holding aren't blowing out and stuff like that and. You really need to be on site to get all that sort of stuff sorted. We, yes, there's a lot of that, but I think, I think that's still the goal. That would be, and yeah, that would be my goal that that farmers can basically discover happy cow, figure out what we're about, run through a training course. I don't know, go through some procedures, whatever. Our equipment just arrives, or they can manufacture the equipment themselves, or they can. There'll be ways of you know we don't want to be shipping stuff so if they can if they're in europe you know it's better to get it direct from the manufacturer or whatever and they assemble it themselves and uh and it comes with the regulatory certification already done so we've done all that before ahead of time and um i guess you know with technology now we should be able to find you know if if a farmer starts up in you know hamburg or something we should say, right, you want four cafes, you want three catering companies, you want some work, whatever. We'll have a, a customer mix and we can help them do that ourselves. Um, yeah. This is the marketing material. Here you go. It gets customized. Right, get your customers. And you do all that even before you sign on the dotted line, basically. Yeah. You can, um, so, and I, I guess I really want... Um, it sounds a bit communing and a bit hippie, but you know, like we want that farmer to become like the, um, you know, their local farmer and they're part of a community. And then the people who are delivering milk, so they, they're getting paid to do it, but they're actually doing it because they like being part of that little community and serving their community. Yeah, well, I, I, I can sort of share a story around that. So I recently went back to Hawke's Bay. My uh, dad's place got uh, hit by the floods and mm. in Pronghao. And um, it's, you know, a lot of beef and lamb. It's quite marginal land out there. But, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was interesting because, you know, nothing, none of the FPOS networks, none of that stuff worked. Money doesn't really matter oh. out there either because it's, it's the middle of nowhere. But what you did see was, you know, a, a, a cord of firewood, you know, it equals, you know, a, a bit of home kill or 
um, mm. you know, a couple of chainsaws, they equal uh, an air compressor or a generator. You know, there, there's a sort of barter economy, which you see quite a lot in rural communities, um, mm. and people sort mm. of help each other out. And it's really quite a positive um, thing. I mean, I, I, I mean, everyone sort of came um, came to the party to help out with that um, flood recovery there. And what you're saying, and I guess this is what I'm really interested in, is also at a higher level, that kind of Uber approach, which personally I think Uber, there's some challenges there around how that company yeah. came to be the way it is um, mm. through just massive injections of capital. But that yeah. that model, so, you know, forgetting about the technology for a minute, which is, you know, that's a solvable problem, but mm. the, the model, the kind of the protocol level thinking of like, well, what would it look like to, instead of having you know, your Gilmore's or your, you know, your, you know, your standard kind of wholesalers who are doing all of this stuff, but to actually have quite a decentralized tailored thing that will just sort mm-hmm. of make it happen. Um, is that, yeah. you know, like, you know, and kind of exploring that kind of conceptually before thinking so, about the tech. Yeah. Mm, so, I mean, you think of it logically, you've got a farmer, he's, you know, we're, um, what are we, 45 minutes out of Auckland. Um, and he's basically got 10 tanks of milk on the farm there should be a way that someone can decide right i'm going to write three of those need to go to hamilton or or yeah it doesn't need to be the farmer doesn't need to start up a truck and go and do it there should be um you know someone who does who says this is my job or a couple of people who decide that they do that and they'll pick those 10 tanks up take them into central auckland maybe at nine o'clock at night so they're not hit by traffic and drop them all off at a central location. And then whoever's doing that final mile of delivery comes in and picks up the tank that they need. And it's all allocated. And then they do their, you know, those door-to-door deliveries, bring the tanks back. So they get picked up, brought back to the farm, washed and uh, refilled again. So that's, yeah. And, and then, you know, you don't just have one farmer. You probably need three or four farms. And basically how to, how to build that technology that, um I don't think it's going to be that hard, but you, um, it's also the predictive, um, what's the word? It's the coordination, you know, it figures out who's going to run out of milk when, so we need to have a delivery there when, and the system highlights to people who needs to be where when. Um, do, you, do you think there's an opportunity yeah. here? So the, the classic argument is that free markets are the, the best organisers of things. Is there an yeah. argument here perhaps that given... The, there is an incumbent system with, uh, you know, the supermarkets in Fonterra and I imagine the wholesalers, you know, your likes of Gilmore's and that are, are also, you know, who are providing um, uh, food um, deliveries straight to cafes and, and, yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Is there an opportunity where if, you know, continued price increases happen, um, more and more people are starting to think, man, this is just a, a too much for us, that actually on a, just on a purely economic level, um, a local alternative system could... Um, you know, outcompete that just by being superior and also um, financially just cheaper to, to use something local um, like that. Yeah, it's interesting, like, um, yeah, how the, like, there's a, a competitor selling milk, home delivery milk into Auckland, and the milk comes from Canterbury um, in a glass bottle, and then it gets shipped up across the Cook Strait up to Auckland gets delivered, they pick up bottles, send them all back down again to Canterbury, they get refilled. I assume that's how it happens. Um, and then you, and I was talking to actually Lewis Road founder a couple of years ago, and well, I don't think he'll mind me saying, but he was saying that um, you know they didn't make any money 
um, from milk sold south of Taupo. Um, but they did it because it was for the brand and stuff like that. But, um, you know, again, these are these massively long supply chains all across New Zealand for pretty much everything. Um, and I, I'm not sure if we can do it cheaper. You might say, you know, I sort of think, how on earth can you drive a truck a thousand kilometers and you can't drive 60 minutes and do it cheaper? But when you have a, a semi-trailer filled with whatever, it, the, the unit economics um, actually work out. Um, but we should be able to. Um, I think you should be able to. I think where, where it um, falls down is a lot of independents or small people like myself or whatever, they start doing something and they just just don't do it very well. <laughs> um, and service is poor or something like that. So that, that's the real struggle for, um, I think, lo what local and decentralized means is, is you have lots of uh, independent people who are or are not following the system. I guess it's like a franchise system, isn't it, really? That's mm. probably a McDonald's is a good example where you go everywhere and you get the same Big Mac wherever you are. Mm. That's a kind of what you need to aspire to, which, again, is that really new? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, um, that is interesting. I, I definitely see a lot of analogies here with sort of the world that I'm exposed to. And um, mm. yeah, I I, know, I I do like thinking about this and, I, and, and kind of conceptualizing what, what this could look like because I think there is certainly change in the air for the world and um, things are kind of okay for the moment and New Zealand has always been kind of you know on a, doing its own thing in the world but <laughs> I mean who knows who knows where we're going to go and I, I do appreciate you know people like yourself looking at this and uh, experimenting with this and um, I, I think bridging bridging new ideas you know being able to download your own hardware schematics for a, a unit for your farm you know being able to assemble that yourself being able to plug into the network i mean it feels like the sort of thing that a bitcoiner or a, a person interested in open source <laughs> software would do you know downloading a computer you know um, blueprint or something and, and building that out and yeah. I, I feel like that's where the world's heading but i mean I, I think it's a great story and it's really interesting i would like to actually catch up again i think and and, and see where it's at you know because this um, I mean, Zoom's good, but it's also good to catch up in person. So you're you're oh, yeah, you're, yeah. Up, you're up in Auckland, as you say. You're, yeah, we're um, um, the farm is um, um, Takofara, so yeah. that's where we're sort of based. And uh, yeah, but we're coming into Auckland, well, I guess most days, hopefully, yeah. delivering milk. Yeah, no, that, that's an incredible story. And I mean, I know there is a lot out there. I mean, certainly. Um, you know, even just broader agriculturally. I mean, Auckland's quite a quite an interesting place. You've got Pukekohe to the south with a lot of vegetables. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got Kumu up north, you know, up north and that. So, I mean, it's it really is. And also, a lot of people don't realize, but, I mean, even um, historically before, you know, trucks and that were, were a major thing, you know, places like Levin and down, down, down my way in yep. Wellington, I mean, that was where all of the production was. And Pukekohe was all the production for for Auckland, and and it yeah. was you know there was no there was no imports, there was no you know stuff coming <laughs> up from the South Island, so it's not a new idea, you know, to have something done locally. Um, well, we're kind of it's like the glass bottle; we're just doing everything we did back in the fifties. Yeah, um, but that's cool. Um, look, Glenn, it's really great mm. to catch up about that. Um, if people want to sort of follow the story, um, you know, sort of follow what you're doing with Happy Cow Milk Company, and that, what's the best way for them to to find out more? Oh, I'd just go to our website, happycowmilk.co.nz, and sign up to our newsletter. So our newsletter is um, probably our biggest form of communication. And, um, yeah, that's probably the best way. 
Yeah, sweet. All right. Thanks very much, Glenn. All right. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it.